As always, I hope you have your copy of the scripture and you'll turn to the text for the day. And again, I realize this is the seventh Sunday that we have taught about uh, these verses in John 15, verses 1 through 11. And we'll finish up this passage up today. Um, it is absolutely astounding to me um, how what Jesus said in these 11 verses is fleshed out in, in the rest of the New Testament. And Paul, I believe, picks up on the Lord bearing fruit through us and what it means to abide in him. And my prayer is that you have been drawn closer to the Lord and that you and I will be abiding in him and that we will be bearing fruit, more fruit, and much fruit for his kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again that we have these moments to come and study the word of God. Lord, I pray that we would not doubt your word, but Lord, we would not only believe it, but enable it to fill our hearts and minds so that we could truly represent you to a lost and dying world. And Father, help us again to understand that Jesus is the light of the world. And when we allow the light of Christ to dwell in us, we are showing others how they can know eternal life and abundant life. And so, Father, we pray that you have fed our souls and, Lord, that we will be willing to abide in you so that you can abide in us and that we can bear fruit. Father, again, we pray that our lives will be changed because we have studied the word of God and we've worshiped you together today. May the Spirit of God take the words of Jesus and help us to understand them and to apply them and to live them. For we ask in your name. Amen. Let me again read these verses. John 15, beginning with verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that bears no fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already made clean by the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If a man does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, again, remember that Jesus has talked about and we've studied about vines are branches that do not bear fruit and branches that do. And we've talked about the fruitless branches, and now I want us to continue our thoughts on the fruit, fruitful branches. And remember that one of the things that Jesus says here in verse 2, every branch of mine that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, folks, again, listen to what he's talking about. 
he is saying that the vine breath, uh, dresser, that is God the Father, will prune so that the branch can bear more fruit. Now, what does that mean that God prunes us? Well, I believe that it means that God removes, he seeks to remove from our lives anything that diverts or hinders the vital life of Christ in us. Now, again, I want to read that again, not because I said it, but because I think this is such a very important thing. And you and I that know that we're Christians, we know whether we're bearing fruits or not. But if we're bearing fruit, guess what? God's going to prune us. He is going to remove and seek to remove from our lives anything that diverts or hinders the vital flow, life flow of Christ in us. And let me, let me point out what this means. First of all, God's going to, he's going to convict us by the Holy Spirit regularly of our sins. How long has it been since you and I, as a born-again believer, fessed up to God and says, here's some sins I got in my life? Probably for most of us, it was this morning or last night. We must be consciously aware of the sins that are keeping us from reaching our full potential for the Lord. And the Apostle Paul, he struggled with sin every day. As you read his writings, especially in Romans uh, 6, 7, and 8, you and I get a sense of how Paul struggled with his own personal sins. But let me point some verses out to you in Colossians chapter 3, and I'm going to read the first 17 verses in Colossians 3. And folks, I want to tell you something. I believe as Christians, you and I ought to read this passage of Scripture very frequently. Because Paul, again, describes the struggle that the Christian has on a day-to-day basis. And listen to how he words some of this, okay? Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Listen to this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What do we seek after in life? Is it spiritual, godly, Christ-like things? Listen to what he says in verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died. Remember, as we got started in this study, we quoted from um, Paul's writings from Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Folks, there are some things that you and I need to put to death in our life because when we trusted Christ as Savior, the old man died. Listen again, verse 3. For you have died, your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now listen to what he says in verse 5. Put to death. These are strong words, aren't they? And here's some things. He's not talking about us dying physically, but dying to sin in our spiritual lives. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he begins to mention sins. Some of these are words that we're not accustomed to, but they're speaking about sexual and immorality that was prevalent in Paul's day. Fornication, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is is coming. And listen to what he says in verse 7. And these you once walked when you lived in them. And again, folks, we need to ask ourselves, are we truly different people than the day in which we trusted Christ as our Savior? And that's something we need to constantly ask ourselves. Is there a difference in us? Listen to what Paul says. But now put them all away, and he's going to mention some more, anger, wrath, malice, slander, foul talk from your mouth. 
Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old nature with its practices and have put on the new nature, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Do you get the picture? Paul is saying the old man, before we trusted Christ, with all of that sinful nature, is to be put to death. And now the new nature, which is in the image of Christ, is to be what others see in us. Listen to what he says in verse 11. Here there cannot be Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, but Christ is all and in all. And listen to verse 12 and following. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Here's, what we should, here's how we should look. Compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness, patience, forbearing one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord is forgiving you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, folks, that's a lot of scripture to absorb at one time, I know. But let me just encourage you to do this. Later today sometimes this week, sit down and read those verses again in the privacy of your home or wherever you do your devotions. And ask yourself this question, which of these verses describe you and me and our church? Is it verses 5 through 10, the old man, or is it verses 12 and following where Paul talks about basically putting on Christ? Folks, we've made living the Christian life a joke, I believe, anymore. And, 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 and again, I'm speaking to myself, okay? We come to church, and, and we want to hear these spiritual things, but when we leave the church, Satan says, well, you know, that's really not important. It's in the Bible, so don't worry about it. Oh, you don't have to pay attention to that stuff. But let me tell you something. Every lost person that we encounter is examining our lives. And if we're not living what we are professing, then we are leading people away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so often that includes not only our family, but the people in our closest circle of friends and even each other. Even each other. As a church, even each other. So why have I read that passage of Scripture? The Father wants to prune this sin out of our life. To God, sin is a serious thing. Sin is what separates mankind from the loving Heavenly Father. Sin is what caused Jesus to leave his throne in heaven and come to this earth and die on the cross. Sin is what will take people to hell if they do not trust Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Sin is a serious thing. Sin will destroy our witness. Sin will destroy this church if we allow it to abide within the church and if we become uh, proud and arrogant and all these other things that we allow to come in. I'm so afraid right now in our day that the church is being tempted to become like the world thinking that the world will like us. Folks, the church doesn't, the world doesn't want a church that is filled with sin. The church wants a world that is filled with Christ so that they can see the Lord Jesus Christ. So God will prune these earthly things away. Sometimes God prunes us through the trials and tribulations of life. 
How many of us say, well, Lord, just send me another trial and tribulation? I don't. Matter of fact, I gripe when he does. But listen to what James says, living in a time of trials and testing and persecution. Listen to what he says in James 1, verses 2, 3, and 4. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. Folks, sometimes, and, and I, I even thought about it this morning, and I tried to thank God for some trials that, that, that my family and I are going through right now. God, let it bring steadfastness. Let it bear more fruit. And sometimes we would just say, God, don't send no trials my way. Doesn't it mean being a Christian means everything's going to be lovely, healthy, wealthy, and prosperous? And according to some TV preachers, I don't know where they've been living at lately. It's tough being a child of God now. It is tough being a church that stands up for the truth and is not willing to back down. It is tough, and it's a trying time that we're living in. But guess what? During those trying times, God is at work in us, and he's pruning us. And in verse 4, James says, Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And I believe that you and I could say that means bearing a whole lot of fruit for the kingdom of God. And listen to John 15, 3 in the Living Bible. Listen to this. He has already tended you by pruning you back for greater strength and usefulness by means of the commands that I give you, that I gave you. Folks, how many of us really sit down and enjoy saying, I'm glad that God has insisted that we turn from sin and turn from self, that we deny ourselves, take up our cross, uh, and follow him on a day-to-day -day basis. How many of us are really happy about that? And folks, again, I confess, it's hard. But folks, listen, all the words and instructions of Jesus, when we obey them, make us more fruitful for God. And in order for you and I to bear more fruit, we must acknowledge our weaknesses and sins, and we must confess our need for his strength And when we confess that need, what will we do? Verse 4. Listen to this. And this is a key verse. Abide in me and I in you. Folks, what does it mean to abide? I love the way uh, different versions of the Bible give different translations of this word. The King James and RSV, the Revised Standard, use the word abide. The last two, the King James says, continue and remain. The New International Version, if you've got that, uh, speaks about remaining. We're going to speak about what that means in just a minute. But folks, how important is this concept? In these verses that we've read, the word abide is used ten times, and I'm sure you've noticed that. And, and I don't need to point this out, but I want to. In verse 4, three times. Verse 5, one time. 6, one time. 7, two times. Verse 9, one time. And verse 10, two times. What do you think? Jesus is trying to get the disciples' attention. And folks, what does it mean to abide in Christ? Let me give you four things that abiding in Christ means, and I got these from Warren Wiersbe. Again, I think he's one of the greatest Bible scholars. And let me just mention these very quickly and very simply. Okay, abiding in Christ, number one, means to keep in fellowship with Christ so that Christ can work in and through us to produce spiritual fruit. Now, how do we fellowship with Christ? There's so many things that go on. We worship him. We study his word. We obey him. 
And we're going to mention that in just, well, the next thing. Look at number two. Abiding in Christ means we obey the words of Christ and the word of God. And in verses 3 and verse 9, Jesus talks about obeying him. Folks, you know, again, we're living in a society that says if you want to do it, do it. If everybody else is doing it, do it. But look, as Christians belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ, if he says don't you do it, it is best for us not to do it. Amen? And if he says we should do it, then we ought to be making our best effort to do it. The third thing about what it means to abide in Christ, confession of sin that nothing hinders our communion with Christ. And I believe that's listed in verse 3 where he says, you are already made clean by the word which I've spoken to you. Cleansing here, I think, always is referring to our sin. There must be confession of sin. And you know, if we don't confess our sin as Christians, you know what that means? Our number one sin is personal pride. You and I need to remember again, God is what? Holy. And that's our calling, to be holy like the Lord. Holy means to be set apart for him. Most of the time, we're not set apart for him. We're set apart for me. And again, I'm just sharing this with you, folks. I think it's all in this passage of Scripture. And I want to point out number four, and this is something I, I think we really just need to grab a hold to. It. We need to obey Christ because we love him. Don't obey Jesus because the preacher stands in the pulpit and says you need to do that. As a young person, don't obey Jesus because your parents or others tell you to do it. Obey Jesus because you love Jesus more than you love yourself and you love your sinful desires. As I was studying this, I was thinking, didn't Jesus Christ love us more than he loved himself? And the best example of that is the cross. He was not guilty. He had not sinned. He was God's own son, but he gave himself for us. Well, folks, how can you and I tell if we're abiding in Christ? Is it just a special feeling of the closeness of Christ? Folks, I believe it's much more than a feeling. When we are abiding in Christ, there are evidences according to Christ that he's abiding in us. And let me give you six evidences from this passage of Scripture that we're abiding in Christ. Number one, we're bearing fruit for Christ. Amen. Verse 2, 5, and 8. Again, this Scripture, you read it so much, it, it becomes so simple and plain to understand that. Number two, we are experiencing the Father's pruning. Folks, if you aren't being pruned, guess what? You might not be bearing fruit. If there are no trials or tribulations coming in your life, if the Spirit of God is not telling you, man, you're doing some things wrong, Christ might not be pruning you. That's bad because that means you're not bearing any fruit. Thirdly, when we are abiding in Christ, we're having our prayers answered, verse 7. That's what Jesus says here in verse 7. Listen to this. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will, it will be done for you. Now, again, don't misunderstand that. That's not, God, I want it, so you give it to me. A fourth thing, this evidence that we're abiding in Christ, we are experiencing a deeper love for Christ. Verse 9. I didn't read them, but listen, let me read to you verse 12 and 13. If you've got your Bible open, and I hope you do, 
Look what verse 12 and 13 says. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Folks, if we are abiding in Christ, we are experiencing a deeper love for Christ, which leads to a growing love for other believers. Anybody you mad at in here right now? <laughs> Woo! That's a good question, ain't it? Don't answer out loud. Don't call any names. Depends on how things went at home before you came to church, isn't it? Who are you mad at? Here's the point, folks. When we're abiding in Christ, one of the fruits that we're going to bear, we're going to love the brethren. We're going to love each other. You know, it burdens me to hear so many churches are being broken up and split because people get angry with each other and they cannot come to agreement in the Lord and forgive, forget, and love each other. And that is one of the poorest witnesses for our church. How can we bear fruit if we don't love the Lord and love each other? And folks, the fifth thing that's evidence we're experiencing the joy of Christ, verse 11. And remember again, Jesus said, these things I've spoken unto you that you might have my joy and your, my joy might, it might be full, okay? I didn't quote that exactly right. And the sixth evidence is that we're glorifying the Father, verse 8. Jesus said, you glorify the Father, prove to be my disciples. But folks, let's point something out. This abiding relationship is natural to the branch and the vine, but it is not automatic. You know, we want shortcuts in life, don't we? I, I'm one. I, tell me the shortest distance and the one that's going to have least resistance and least struggle. Folks, you and I cannot abide in Christ without being a person of worship, both personally and corporately, and I mean corporately, the church gathering. You and I cannot abide in Christ if we're not willing to meditate upon God's word, if we're not willing to take time in prayer, if we're not willing to sacrifice something for Jesus Christ, if we're not willing to serve others. Jesus demonstrated all these things in his abiding in the Father. And let me read those again. Worship, meditation on God's word, prayer, sacrifice, and service. And folks, something that I'm beginning to see about myself you know one of the things that we don't want to turn over to god is our time and if we're going to be people of worship of meditating upon god's word prayer sacrifice and service we're going to have to give god time to work in us and bear fruit through us but all these things will produce what fruit and joy fruit and joy what a wonderful combination the more we do for the Lord, I believe the more joy there is in our heart. Read the book of Philippians. Paul's in prison, but he mentions the word rejoice over and over and over again because the more he served Christ, the greater his joy in the Lord God. Last Sunday, I told you that before we concluded, we were going to look at verse 2 and verse 6. And I want to do that right now. Give me just a few more minutes, okay? Do these two verses, especially verse 6, and look at verse 6 where it says, the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Does that mean that we as Christians can lose our salvation if we don't bear fruit and be cast into hell as a result of choosing not to bear fruit? I do not believe that. Amen. But I have found some Bible scholars some study Bibles 
one that I have, and I'm not criticizing it. You know, I've, I've found so many good. Somebody came up to me after, I think it was the fifth sermon, and said, well, look, look at what it says in, in my uh, study notes. And I want to tell you something. If you've got a study Bible, the Word of God is inspired, but the notes necessarily aren't inspired sometimes, okay? And I want you to know that, all right? And I'm not being critical. I don't mean it that way because you might disagree with me in what I'm about to tell you. And, and I want to share these thoughts after prayer and study. Remember that these words are a parable or an allegory. Jesus is using the popular teaching of his day to expose spiritual truth. And we must, ser we must search for the true meaning of this passage in the context that Jesus spoke it. All around these verses in the Gospel of John, John has written about what? The potential of losing your salvation or about eternal and everlasting life? It's always been the Son came to serve and to save. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We have eternal life because Jesus loves us, gave himself for us, and we trust him as our Savior and the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And salvation is never given or promised because of our works. Let me read two passages of Scripture. Just follow with me and just humor me and let me, let me get through this, okay? Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is what? The gift of God. Salvation is a gift from God to you and I. We don't earn it. If we did, let me ask you something. All of us are sinners. That's what Paul says. Is there anybody here that would say, I've never sinned before? I, I know the answer to that. None of us could. All of us have sinned. But if we were, our salvation was based on works, how would we work enough to get all of our sin canceled out? I've probably done one, enough sin in one day to destroy my soul forever. The Bible does not talk about working for salvation, but it is the free gift of God. Let me finish reading that pass passage of Scripture, verse 9. Not because of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. I think that's another way of saying we're created in Christ Jesus for fruit-bearing, okay, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when we trust Christ as Savior, we become his children, and he never abandons us or forsakes us. Would you not agree with that? Amen. Every branch of mine, Jesus says in verse 2. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of us were disobedient, wayward children while we were growing up? Don't raise your hand. But did our parents, our parent, abandon us, deny us, and disown us? I'm sure there were some times that even Mae Brown said, I wish I'd have never had that second child. What is he thinking about? As parents, have we had wayward and disobedient children? Don't raise your hand. But did we disown them? Did we deny them? Folks, listen. There is example after example in Scripture where God did not disown his own children, the nation of Israel, King David, King Solomon, the prodigal son that Jesus talked about in Luke 15, 
God does not abandon us because of our rebellion and sin and unfruitfulness. So what does verse 2 and verse 6 mean? And I've got to read a couple of pages, okay? And I'm not trying to treat you like children, but I want you to know this didn't come from me. This is a little book entitled Secrets of the Vine by Bruce Wilkinson. Listen to this. Jesus said, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Verse 2. What a troubling thought. Some good Bible teachers have interpreted this verse to mean that if you bear no fruit, you can't be a Christian. Christian. Others have said take away means if you persist in a life without showing evidence of your salvation, you lose it. But don't you think the phrase, every branch in me, should prove the main point? The New Testament repeatedly describes the believer as in Christ. Therefore, and this is the author speaking, I believe we can safely conclude that it's possible to be in Christ, yet be like the branch that produces no fruit for a time. Experience bears this out. If you're like me, you've gone a week or a year living in such a way that you know you didn't bear fruit. I believe that that's what Jesus is talking about. Besides, we know that salvation was never a work on our part to begin with. And he quotes Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith that is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then there's Jesus' puzzling remarks in verse 3. You're already clean. How is takes away relates to cleanness? And what does cleanness have to do with no fruit? The answer comes in two parts. First, the clear translation of the Greek arrow rendered in John 15 as take away should be take up or lift up. We find accurate renderings of arrow, for example, when the disciples took up 12 loaves of bread after the feeding, uh, 12 baskets of bread after the feeding of the 5,000, when Simon was forced to bear Christ's cross, and when John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, in both the Bible and in Greek literature, ero never means cut off. Therefore, when some Bibles render the word as take away or cut off in John 15, it is an unfortunate interpretation rather than a clear translation. Lift up suggests an image of a vine dresser leaning over, uh, uh, leaning over to lift up a branch. But why? The second part of the answer came from me years ago at a pastor's conference on the West Coast. A sun-browned man came up to me and asked, Do you understand John 15? Not completely, I answered. Why? The man replied, I'm a large vineyard owner in Northern California. I think I have it figured out. I offered to buy him a cup of coffee on the spot. As we sat across the restaurant table from each other, he began to talk about the life of a grower. The long hours spent walking the vineyards, tending the grapes, watching the fruit developing, waiting for the perfect day to begin harvest. New branches have a natural tendency to trail down and grow along the ground. Guess what? I planted some blackberries for the first time this year, and that is the truth. They will tend to fall down, but they don't bear fruit down there. When the branches grow along the ground, the, leaf, the leaves get coated in dust. When it rains, they get muddy and mildewed, and that has happened this year. The branch becomes sick and useless. What do you do, I ask? Cut it off and throw it away? Oh, no, he explained. The branch is much more valuable uh, and much too valuable for that. We go through the vineyard with a bucket of water looking for those branches. We lift them up, wash them off, and he demonstrated with, to me with dark, callous hands. Then we wrap them around the trellis or tie them up. Pretty soon they're thriving. 
As he talked, I could picture Jesus' own hand motions when he taught in the vineyard that night. He was showing how the Father makes sure his crop comes in full and sweet. When the branches fall into the dirt, God doesn't throw them away or abandon them. He lifts them up, cleans them off, and helps them flourish again. Amen. When we fall down, he lifts us up. You don't have to pay me for overtime. Give me just a couple more minutes, okay? All right. Jesus goes on to say in verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and withered, and they gather and throw them in the fire. These words sound catastrophic, but Jesus isn't threatening a barren branch with hell. Unlike the olive tree whose wood has found many uses since ancient times, the grape produces wood that is brittle and small. Jesus is making a dramatic point. If we are not abiding, we wither and die and become of no spiritual use. I think that is one of the whole points in this passage of Scripture. Folks, we must be abiding in Christ. But, folks, there's an even greater lesson that I think Jesus is pointing out, and this comes out of another commentary. Since the object or the subject is a bearing of fruit and not eternal life, the burning of the branch is a judgment upon fruitlessness, not an abandonment to eternal destruction. Let me read some verses out of 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 15. I hope that you'll mark these verses down, okay? Paul is talking to believers, and he's talking to the church. Paul's words would be well taken in our day. Paul says there's going to come a time of testing at Christ's judgment day to see what kind of materials each builder has used. Now, look at this, all right? And we can read this, 2 Corinthians 5.10. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, okay? Every Christian, according to the Word of God, is going to stand before Christ at the judgment seat. Now, this is not going to be whether determining whether we get into heaven or not. That's not it. We've been born into the kingdom of God, and salvation is secure. But Christ is going to judge us for what we have or haven't done. And listen to this. Everyone's work will be put through the fire so that all can see whether or not it keeps its value and what was really accomplished. Then every workman who has on the foundation with the right materials and whose work will stand will get his pay. And that's rewards. But if the house he has built burns up, he will have a great loss. He himself, now look at this, underscore this, he himself will be saved but like a man escaping through a wall of flames. Folks, I believe that what Paul is trying to say right here is that it's important that you and I serve the Lord Jesus Christ because one day, and let's look at this verse, Steve. You go to 2 Corinthians 5.10. Okay, let me read that to you. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged and have our lives laid bare before him. Each of us will receive whatever he deserves for the good or bad things he has done in this earthly body. The day of judgment is the day... The day of judgment in 2 Corinthians 5.10 is the day when Christ will judge the quality of a Christian's work. It is not a question of his salvation because salvation is a gift of God to us. 
And listen to these two verses, Romans 6, 23. You know this verse well, for the wages of sin is death. But look at this, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I believe that once Christ has come into our heart, we do not lose our salvation, but I believe one day we're going to stand before Christ and Christ is going to say, look at your life. What did you really do for me? I had all this plan for you. I wanted you to bear fruit. All you needed to do was to abide in me, and you would have borne much fruit. Folks, let me close with this verse. And I just ran across this verse one day and just, just read. I was, I was reading some other verses, and I ran into this verse. Listen to this, 1 John 2.28. And now little children, and he's not talking about children, but he's talking about members of the church, Christian believers. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. I'll say this and I'll close. I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you nor on me. If we believe that Jesus Christ is coming back again, if we believe that one day we'll see him and stand before him. The word of God teaches it. Jesus promised it. Are we living like that, though? Are we living like one day we're going to look at him? Can you imagine how Thomas felt when he looked at the Lord a week after he had said, I'm not going to believe that he appeared to you guys and that he's alive until I can see the nail prints in his hand, the spear mark in his side. I will not believe. And what happened the next week? Jesus said, come and see Thomas. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God, one day we're going to stand before Jesus. And all the stuff that we thought was so more important, much more important than serving Jesus. How will we explain it to him? And again, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. That's not my point. Folks, we need to make an out-and-out decision. We're going to follow Jesus. We're going to abide in him so that he can abide in us and we can bear fruit and be fruitful for the kingdom of God. Because, you know, it's not going to matter. All these other things that we're so wrapped up and caught up in, it's not going to matter. And I'm not trying to be critical. I am simply trying to say we need to get the right perspective. Jesus is getting ready to die on the cross. He knows these, these 11 that are left, they're going to be tempted to turn from him and run and hide, and they did temporarily. But then, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God got a hold of their hearts and that little group of 120 began to turn their world upside down. They did it because they were abiding in Christ. You know, this, this passage of Scripture, I think we could just go on and on looking at this passage of Scripture. We need to abide in Christ because we love him. I said I'd stop. Let's pray. Father, humble my heart that I'll not preach a message to your people that I will not live myself.
God, we believe that your son is alive and that he wants to live in us. And he wants his life in us to go beyond simply saving us from our sin because he's already done that on the cross. And our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. But Father, help us see now the importance of what he is saying to these disciples to abide in him so that we can be be fruit-bearing Christians. Father, whatever it might be that's hindering us from bearing fruit for you, God, may we surrender that to you and ask you to just remove it from us. Prune us, Father, that we might bear a greater fruit for you as individual Christians and most especially as a church. May we humble ourselves and confess our sin. May we believe the reality of heaven and hell knowing that if people do not hear and do not respond to your son, then they will be lost forever. Lord, help us to see the importance on a day-by-day basis of how we act and what we say and what we do. Father, if we're not bearing fruit, prune us so that we will. And if we're already bearing fruit, may we bear much fruit and more fruit for the kingdom of God. Father, change us from what we want to be to what you want us to be. And God, may we just trust you that you're at work, even when we cannot see, even at our weakest moments, Father. Please use us for your kingdom's work. For we ask in your son's name. Amen. Our hymn this morning is number 559, More Love to Thee. Folks, I I truly pray that God speak through me. It's not about me, it's about him, but I pray that he speaks through me to my heart and to your heart. Perhaps we are living in the last day. I don't know, and I'm not going to say we are, but perhaps we are. There's a need for fruit-bearing Christians and fruit-bearing churches, and I just pray that we'll be in that number. It's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be cheap. We're going to have to give it all to Jesus and abide in him. If you need to come today and if you just want to kneel at the altar, if you want to speak to me, whatever you need to do, whatever the Spirit of God is impressing on your heart, don't be ashamed of what others might be thinking of you if you come. Be ashamed of what Christ might think of you if you don't come. Let us stand.